Now, <laughs> what do you think about the text we read? Ecclesiastes chapter 1. A bit depressing, right? You don't want to say, thanks be to God, after hearing it. You want to say, God, get me out of here. You don't want to read this on a sunny summer day. It doesn't sound like Caleb. Positive, uplifting, and encouraging. <laughs> One writer said, think of Ecclesiastes as the only book of the Bible written on Monday. It's a testimony of a guy that's just slogging through life. In fact, Ecclesiastes seems to take such a gloomy view of life that some people doubt the spiritual value of reading it at all. People have described the author as a cynic, if not a fatalist. He's pessimistic, he's nihilistic. The Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rod went so far as to describe the author as a bitter skeptic suspended over the abyss of despair. He's a skeleton at a feast. Everything comes under his lashing scorn. Some ancient rabbis, rabbis thought he shouldn't be allowed to be in the library of inspiration. One commentator, Cole, even thought that the author had, and I quote, no personal relationship with his God, and that explains his gloom, sub-Christian attitude in the text. Well, what a feast we have before us. Here's how we're going to attack the text. We're going to begin with why study Ecclesiastes, move to how to study Ecclesiastes, and then land on applying gospel hope to the beginning verses of Ecclesiastes. Why study Ecclesiastes? How to study Ecclesiastes? Applying gospel hope to the beginning verses of Ecclesiastes. We'll take them one at a time. First, why study Ecclesiastes? Reason number one. It grants you permission to be honest in your struggle. The author does not sugarcoat anything. His writing drips with a sense of despair. It's dark, bleak, and hopeless. The American novelist Herman Melville, author of Moby Dick, said that Ecclesiastes was the most honest book ever written. It's a bit of a soul vomit. One scholar said that Ecclesiastes is kind of a, a backdoor that allows believers to have the sad, skeptical thoughts that they would never allow to enter the front door of their faith. The author isn't an atheist. But he's honest about the struggle. We see the depths of his spiritual crisis. Church, this book answers the questions of your soul. What is the meaning of life? Why am I so unhappy? Does God really care? Why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? Is life really worth living? I could not think of a better book to study in the year 2020. We need to be prepared for the realism we will face reading it. Especially in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now I have to unpack your cultural definition of the word vanity and then repack it with the biblical definition. Uh, vanity is not the piece of furniture that your grandmother owned. Nor is it someone who is vain, stuck on themselves, absorbed by their current appearance, 
Everything is about them. They can't wait to post their next selfie. They are so vain. They probably think this song is about them. No. This word vanity comes from the Hebrew word habel. Uh, most often pronounced havel. We're going to go with habel. Uh, Sarah had a lady in the church come over a couple of weeks ago. And I was reading. And this lady asked what I was reading. And I said, I'm reading prep for Ecclesiastes. And she said, habel. Habel of habels. Everything is habel. I was impressed she knew the Hebrew word. I couldn't let her know because I was 800 pages into my pre-series reading and um, I was behind schedule. But uh, I was impressed. The author is using a Hebrew superlative form. Vanity of vanities. Grammatical analogies include holy of holies. The most holy place. King of kings. King above all. Lord of lords. Song of songs. Greatest song of all time. It's a Hebrewism. The author uses Habel 28 times in the book. It's his favorite word. It means vapor, a puff of air, or a mere breath. Stand outside on a cold December day and breathe out. What do you see? Breath as a vapor. It appears for a second and then disappears. Vapor of vapor, all is vapor. It's nothing you can get your hands on. It's the nearest thing to zero. It's this airy nothingness. It's meant to show you that life is fleeting and elusive. You know what happens when you blow out a candle. How long does that puff of smoke last? You can smell it, see it. It's very real, but it's also transient, temporary, and vanishes quickly. Smoke. Nothing but smoke. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. So runs a free translation of this verse. This same word, habel, used in other places in your Bible, will, will sometimes mean temporary, but then other times meaningless. And there's different nuances based on the context. So in the context of Ecclesiastes, here's what's happening. The author looks at his life, his house, his family, his career, his friendships, and he says, it's all meaningless. Meaningless of meaninglessness, it's all meaninglessness. It's a sad verdict on life. Everything is a fleeting, meaningless mist. Life just doesn't seem to be fun anymore. And friends, for some of you, life has lost its zip, its zest. It's lost its glimmer. You see no purpose in it, no meaning in it, nothing that can bring you lasting satisfaction. You see no reason to continue, no reason to live, no reason to get out of bed in the morning. Habel of Habels. Now things used to make you excited. You used to enjoy holidays and seasonal changes, but not anymore. You are numb. Nothing gets you high. Nothing stuns you. Nothing shocks you. You're just there, and things are happening around you. But it doesn't even make you blink. Again, this book is going to help some of you so, so much. 
It's going to show you how to trust in God when it's all gone to Habel. Life isn't always neat and tidy. And the honesty of this book is really refreshing. Verse 3. What does man gain? That could be translated profit. What does man profit by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Does everything in your life seem to be in a rut? Where is progress? <laughs> Where is the profit? You spend your whole life working for one company after another, and what do you gain from all your toil? Do you see the honesty that the author is displaying with this struggle? Why study Ecclesiastes, reason number two? Because sometimes you feel like life is a monotonous prison. Verse four. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Verse 4 is a long line of funerals, one after another. And notice, it's not that one generation comes and goes, an idea that conveys progression, but goes and comes. The emphasis is on replacement. We just get replaced. This generation is gone, and another one replaces it. Time will eventually erase you in everything you care about. It doesn't take long to be forgotten. Many of you cannot even, you don't even know the name of your great, great grandfather. One generation goes its way, the next one arrives, but nothing changes. It's business as usual for old planet Earth. The Rocky Mountains just watch presidents come and go, but it remains the same. Now, watch the author as he lists the repetitiveness of nature as illustrated in the sun, the wind, and the stream. Verse 5. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The sun is on an endless cycle. It goes up and then it goes down. It just chases its tail. It rose this morning at 6.35 a.m. And it will set tonight at 4.37 p.m. Maybe I should say it will set this afternoon because that's ridiculous. <laughs> Sets at 4.37 p.m. It's a cosmic merry-go-round. Its path is determined and its pace is fixed. You can't speed up the sun. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south and then goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit, the wind returns. Now, usually we think of wind blowing from west to east like a, like a jet stream. But in Palestine, the wind sometimes comes from the northerly or southerly direction. Presumably, the phenomenon is mentioned here to complete the points on a compass. The sun crawls from east to west while the wind restlessly blows from the north and the south. There's predictability about which seasons hurricanes come. It all seems to be moving in an endless cycle. And, and by the way, notice the beautiful rhythmic pattern of the author's poetry. Uh, feel the lyrical tilt and its title ebb and flow. Verses 3 through 11 are a poem. It continues in verse 7. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. There's an especially vivid example of this where the author lived. Uh, the Dead Sea. 
The Dead Sea is landlocked and it's no outlet to another body of water. Yet for all these centuries, the Jordan River has been flowing down into the Dead Sea. But the sea is not full and thus the water continues to flow. The same is true with the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, the Mississippi can flow into the Gulf of Mexico and, and then into the Atlantic Ocean. But the ocean never overflows and the ocean never gets any deeper. The mighty Mississippi is working hard. But what does it accomplish? Now we know of course that the sea is not full because water evaporates and the clouds bring the rain again back to the land which is another cycle. But the point of the verse is that the flow of water seems profitless. Meaningless. Meaninglessness. It, it makes no difference. And then notice his transition in verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Now I want you to notice the author's teaching tool. Because he's using two sets of threes. The, the ceaseless activity of the sun, the wind, and the streams are mirrored in human life as, as all this activity of nature gains nothing, so all human activity of speaking, seeing, and hearing gains absolutely nothing. Nothing changes despite a whole lot of activity. The universe is trapped in a meaningless cycle that never ultimately accomplishes anything. Do you ever feel like you're trapped in a meaningless cycle that ultimately never accomplishes anything? Life can feel useless, repetitive, like you're on a treadmill. Same old, same old. You walk into the kitchen with a sink full of dishes. So you roll up your sleeves, you clean them, you dry them, you put them away. You walk back into the kitchen the next morning and what is there? Dishes. You clean the floor, someone walks on it. You clean it again, 30 minutes later, it's covered in Legos. You do one load of laundry a day to make sure you never get behind. But somehow, that one load a day is never quite enough. These are the facts of life. More bills, more emails, more haircuts, more grass to mow. It never ends. And you begin to question if your life really has any meaning beyond the endless cycle. If you're a gerbil trapped in a cage, running on a wheel, is there, is there any lasting purpose to the things you do in life? Does it have any meaning? I, I can testify, the treadmill of life can be exhausting. Do you know what the word futility means? It means pointless, useless. And you may have days, weeks, months, and even years stamped by futility. Pointless activity. <laughs> A mother walked into her five-year-old son's bedroom and found him crying as he was getting ready for the day. She asked, what's the matter? He replied, I can tie my shoes now. All by myself. That's wonderful. You're growing up so quickly, the mother exclaimed. But why are you crying? He answered, 
Because now I have to do this every day for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know what you're going to do tomorrow? Your alarm will go off at 6 a.m. You'll hit the snooze button. Twelve times you'll hit the snooze button. And eventually you'll step out of bed at about 6.45 and then stumble into the shower. You'll get dressed. You'll run to the car. You'll stop at Starbucks and waste a ridiculous amount of money. You're, you will sit in traffic. You'll get to your office or your field or even worse, your cubicle, which just means you're, you're in a closet. You'll work for four hours until lunch. At lunch, you will leave and drive to a restaurant. Now, after lunch, you will go back to your cubicle and you will work until 5, 5.30, 6, 6.30, whatever. You will then leave there and maybe go to the gym. Probably not. You'll want to, you know you should, but instead you'll go home and eat that delicious dinner. And then you'll watch a little TV and then you'll go to bed. It's Monday. Guess what you're going to do on Tuesday? <laughs> Same thing. Same drinks at Starbucks. Nobody ever orders anything differently. Maybe the same lunch. If it's different, it's one of the three things that you order from that particular place. Back at the same office, same traffic, same TV shows, same bed, same spouse. One pastor said, life is more like the film Groundhog Day than anyone wants to admit. You're Phil Connors. You're Phil Connors. And you keep reliving February the 2nd, Groundhog Day, over and over again in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. But for you, instead of a dirty groundhog, it's dirty diapers. And you're trapped in a time loop. Nothing you do ever really makes a difference. Why study Ecclesiastes? Well, reason number one, it grants you permission to be honest with your struggle. Reason number two, because sometimes you feel like life is a monotonous prison. This is why you should study Ecclesiastes. Now let's move to how to study. How to study Ecclesiastes. Well, first, realize it's a book for skeptics and agnostics. It's a book people on a quest to know. It's a, it's a book for people on a quest to know the, the meaning of life. Uh, for people who are open to God, but are not sure that they can trust the Bible. If you're not a Christian... Ecclesiastes invites you to bring your doubts. And just by committing to going through the book each week expositionally here, you are enrolling in God's philosophy classroom. And it has more sauce, more, more bite, more tang than your philosophy class in college. Leland Riken calls Ecclesiastes the most contemporary book in the Bible. Realize it's a book for skeptics and agnostics. Secondly... Realize it's a hard book. Sidney Grudanus was right when he said, Ecclesiastes may be the most difficult book to interpret and preach. Which explains why it's the most avoided Old Testament book. Alistair Begg at one time said, Ecclesiastes is the only book I haven't preached through. Now he since has. The only thing commentators agree on seems to be its difficulty. Uh, Craig Bartholomew said, Ecclesiastes is a lot like an octopus. Just when you think you have all the tentacles under control, that is, you understand the book, there's one waving about in the air. Gregory of Nyssa said it's like wrestling in a gymnasium. Now, one of the hard things about the book 
is that it says nothing about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Exodus, the promised land, nor the prophetic hope of the future. It sort of forgets God's act, acts in the past. And, and that, this makes the book a problem child. And for many interpreters, the best option for dealing with a problem child is to put him in an orphanage or at best a boarding school. Well, I want to redeem the problem child through this series. Now, another hard thing about this book is that it, it seems to be a big ramble. Scholars struggle to outline it. A.J. Wright lists 23 commentators who virtually abandoned the task of seeking an outline for the book. And plus, the book is loaded with some weird verses, like Ecclesiastes 9.8. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. Now, granted, I know some single guys who need to hear that, but is it important enough to put in the Bible? Or verses that you're not quite sure what point is being made, like Ecclesiastes 11.3. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the north or to the south, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Obvious. Another hard part is, is found in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now you may have noticed that I haven't told you the name of the book's author. And I did that on purpose because we aren't given his name. We are given hints to his identity. He is the son of David. He is king in Jerusalem. Later in the book it says he, he's king of Israel. And Solomon is the only son of David who reigned over united Israel in Jerusalem. After his death, the kingdom was divided. So it's pretty clear the author is Solomon. He refers to himself as a preacher. But he wasn't a preacher. He was a king. So why call himself a preacher? Well, because his life is preaching a message. Haddon Robinson, one of my dead mentors introduced his sermon on Ecclesiastes this way. He said, I wish I, my voice could get deep like his, but I don't know if I'm not man enough or what, but he's got an amazing voice. He said, I want to be honest with you. I'm bringing you the message of another preacher. Many scholars believe old Solly here wrote Song of Solomon when he was young and in love, gathered Proverbs throughout his life, and after trashing his fleeting life, he sat down as an old man to write Ecclesiastes just before picking out his casket. It's the kind of book you write near the close of your life. Looking back in the rearview mirror, writing arguably the most brutal, painful, helpful book ever written for those feeling the habel of habels. Now, not everyone agrees with me on the identity of the author. Martin Luther, the reformer, was probably the first to deny Solomon as the author. After he rejected Solomon as the author, the floodgates of speculation arose. Uh, Kevin DeYoung thinks the book was written by a narrator telling the story of the prodigal Solomon. Like the 10-part documentary series on Michael Jordan called The Dance. Well, this is a 12-part documentary series on Solomon called The Vanity. Now, you can do your own sleuthing and agree with Martin Luther or Kevin DeYoung, or, or you could be right and agree with me. Uh, either way, it doesn't affect the teaching of the book. 
thirdly, realize it's a wisdom book. The voice of the Old Testament has many accents. Accents. I always love to hear our pastor Dan talk about how accents make America so wonderful. And, and love the different regions and the different accents they have. Where there's, there's many voices, accents of the Old Testament. There's a southern drawl, like a red bone prophet. There's a stern British meticulousness of the lawgiver. But there's no accent quite like that of the wisdom books. It's, it's a difficult genre to interpret. So we must know how to handle wisdom. Proverbs emphasizes ethics, how to live. Job emphasizes suffering, how to hurt. Song of Solomon emphasizes love, how to romance. Ecclesiastes emphasizes despair, how to complain. As we walk through the book, you must remember that wisdom is the author's base camp. But he's an explorer. His concern is with the boundaries of life and especially with the questions that most of us would hesitate to push too far. Kidner says he is not satisfied with the kind of easy answers that children sometimes get in Sunday school. He's like the student who says, yes, but what about? Well, yes, but what, what, what about? The author's argument is accumulative. It's important for you to know. You need to allow the preacher to make his base bit by bit like the artist painting a canvas. You can't pull one statement from the book and evaluate it without the context of the entire book. Ecclesiastes shows us that bumper sticker theology doesn't always tell the whole story. How to study Ecclesiastes. Fourthly, interpret it within the context of thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles. In the early chapters of Genesis, when man rebelled against God, the earth was subjected to a curse. Genesis 3.17. Suddenly there were thorns and thistles. Ecclesiastes describes life after Eden and before heaven. You're living in a Genesis 3 world, surrounded by thorns and thistles. And, and do you know what curse-tasting believers do? They groan. Ecclesiastes is one big groan. More than anything else in the Bible, Ecclesiastes captures the futility and frustration of a fallen world. This book should drive you to paradise restored. A longing for Eden. Ecclesiastes is like a man who fled from home before an invasion. And years later returns to its ruins. And he's crying out. He knows what Eden was. And now he sees it as it is. The broken shell of its former glory. You have to interpret the book. Within the context of thorns and thistles. Genesis 3. Fifthly. You have to interpret it within the context of Romans 8. One verse to keep in mind as you study Ecclesiastes. Is Romans 8.20. And its surrounding context. Ecclesiastes may not be directly quoted in the New Testament. But Paul may be alluding to it here. Paul uses the same word that the Septuagint. The Greek version of, of the Old Testament. The same word that the Septuagint uses in Ecclesiastes 1-2. In Romans 8-20. 
the author talks about the curse imposed on creation because of human sin. Let me back it up. In other words, the problem of Ecclesiastes 1-2 leads to the solution in Romans 8-20. The groaning is going to give way to glory. How to study Ecclesiastes, verses 2 through 8. How to study, no, excuse me, why to study Ecclesiastes, verses 2 through 8. How to study Ecclesiastes, verse 1. Now thirdly, applying gospel hope to the opening verses of Ecclesiastes, verses 9 through 11. Applying gospel hope to the opening verses of Ecclesiastes. Now here's how I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it by answering three questions. I'm not putting up the questions on the screen, but you can easily grab them. They're, they're memorable. Question number one is, what does this text reveal about God? I do this often in my Bible study. Answer these three questions. What does this text reveal about God? How does this text point to Jesus? What should I do as a result of this text? We're going to take those three questions at a time. First, what does this text reveal about God? There is a way in which God wants you to view life. Verse 9. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. If, if habel is the author's favorite word, then under the sun is his favorite phrase. He uses it nearly 30 times in the book. Where do we experience life's futility and frustration? Everywhere in the world. Wherever the sun shines. To see things under the sun, then, is to look at them ground level. It is to take an earthly point of view, leaving God out of it for a moment. It doesn't look above the skies, above the sun. It doesn't look to the ultimate realities that are beyond the earthly realities. Creation, sun, wind, streams eventually weary us upon reflection apart from God. Apart from God, this life is meaningless. Over time, we get sick of that which once delighted us. It bores us. It exhausts us. It drains us. It wears on us. It saps us. It cannot satisfy us. Everything in life becomes a weariness apart from God. I can't get no satisfaction, said the Rolling Stones. We so easily grow restless and bored with life. But... You must not be limited to an earthbound perspective. You don't live under the sun. You live quorum Dio. You live before the face of God. There's a God in heaven who rules over the sun. Therefore, we're not limited to the terrestrial. The repetition that we see in nature is a testimony to the goodness and orderliness of God. The regularity of the created world shows the constancy of its creator. Psalm 147.18, God sends out his word. He makes his wind to blow and his waters to flow. See, life under the sun says that creation is redundant. 
It's the same old sun, same old wind, same old streams. The cycles of nature don't change. Creation is redundant. Rather than seeing the day in and day out routines of creation as Solomon viewed them, view them as the other Old Testament saints viewed creation. Psalm 113.3, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The sunset is designed for us to admire and ponder the creative genius of our God. The Old Testament saints looked with admiration to the skies, pondered lessons taught by animals and wind and grass and trees. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Take away God? Creation does not stimulate worship. It stimulates vanity. Your view of God impacts how you see everything. What does this text reveal about God? He has a way in which he wants you to view life. Second question, how does this text point to Christ? Which is really important when you're reading any Old Testament text. How does this text point to Christ? When Sidney Gradanus, which is one of my, another one of my dead mentors, when he was a pastor in British Columbia, he preached a series of sermons on Ecclesiastes. After hearing one sermon, a retired pastor approached him and asked, I appreciate your sermon, Sid. But could a rabbi have preached your sermon in a synagogue? That comment was a gentle way of revealing that Sid just preached a Christless Old Testament sermon. Don't read Ecclesiastes like Jesus' feet never touched the earth. Jesus Christ left heaven and entered a fallen world and stepped onto the treadmill of humanity. He toiled under the sun, getting splinters in his carpenter's fingers and calluses on his hands. He grew weary, hungry, and thirsty too. His schedule was governed by sunrise and sunset. No electricity. The one who created the sun came to stand under the sun for us. He lived among the thorns and thistles and faced the ultimate wrath that eventually broke the cycle of the sun, making it dark at noon while he hung on the cross. These 11 verses tell us about the frustration in a fallen world, but the gospel tells us about Christ who came to redeem the fallen world. He will return and restore paradise for us, a new and better Eden. Jesus gives meaning to life. He came, John 10, 10, that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Christ's work changed everything. It gives meaning. He gives meaning to the monotony. Last question. What should I do as a result of this text? What should I do as a result of this text? When you change diapers, clean floors, sit in the same old busted up work chair, let those normal rhythms remind you of a Christ 
who entered those rhythms to redeem your wretched soul. When you see a local stream flowing into a larger body of water, when you see the wind blow the leaves off the tree, let it drop you to your knees at the handiwork of God. Tomorrow, when the sun beats on your face, be reminded that sinful humanity beat on the sun's face. S-O-N. When you feel like saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, stop yourself and preach the gospel to yourself. All is not meaningless. Jesus' cross makes everything meaningful. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.